morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible class here, St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, and a special welcome to all of those who are listening live on the radio or later on in the week through the podcast and the website. I'm Pastor Kevin Thompson, and I'm blessed to be here. Let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with another new day, another day to look around in your creation and see your wonderful grace, see your work in all things that are around us, Lord, and all things that you move through us to do. We pray now, Lord, especially this day as we celebrate Pentecost, that you would give us your spirit as we seek to study your word, that again, Lord, we may hear your word and truly take it to heart. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing upon this study in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm wondering, am I maybe a little too loud? No? Victoria, could you just a little? I don't know, it sounds a little bit. All right, how does that sound? Does that sound good volume-wise? All right, I don't want to go too low, but I might be known for also getting a little loud myself. So, um, here we go. We're going to get into our, our scripture readings that are coming up. I'm just going to be really honest with you. I'm not going to get into the details, but the readings that we're about to study are not actually being read here at St. Paul's next week. Okay? We are blessed to be able to have a guest preacher come in, um, Reverend Michael Ziegler, who is uh, the Lutheran Hour speaker. We're blessed with him to come here next week and bring God's word for us. He's using some different readings, so we're going to just still study the readings from the lectionary. Did we run out of handouts? Uh, I set the handouts on the Bible card. If they're not there, would anyone mind sharing one? Maybe... Awesome. That's a good thing. I'm glad to hear that. Running out of handouts is always good, right? It means more of us are here together. Uh, so, Reverend Michael Ziegler will be with us. Oh, thank you. You guys know me well. Thank you. He'll be with us next week, and so he'll be using different readings um, as we get to focus on God's Word for us. So these readings that we're going to study here in our Bible class, we at St. Paul's will not actually hear in worship. However, they are assigned in the coming weeks. So the rest of us, especially those who are listening online, they will be using those in worship. But as always, it's God's Word. So it's good and great to study. So we're going to look first at the Old Testament lesson. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1 through 9. I'd like to read that again. Read that first for us. Isaiah 65, verse 1 through 9. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah's possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Here ends the Old Testament lesson for the coming week. So Isaiah chapter 65. Quite frankly, if we just read that and stopped right there, it seems completely out of context. These words, I mean, although it's, I mean, it's, it's God's word, it will make sense. But if we just jump in and just read that and don't look anywhere else around that part of Scripture, we have no clue what's going on. And we miss an incredibly significant part of what God is saying here. 
Because, just quite frankly, let's get to the point that Isaiah 65, God's the one who's speaking. Because the context that's important for us is backing up into chapter 63. Chapter 63, beginning at verse 7, on through the end of chapter 64, is Isaiah's lament. Isaiah the prophet, again, we have the prophet, the leader of God's people. And here we have the people of God who have been a rebellious people, as is mentioned in our reading. But just get cutting to the kind of the simple way to look at it, we have that God's people have been rebellious. They're going off to, after their own ways. Not following God, not keeping His commandments, not living for Him as they should. And then in 63 and 64, Isaiah is lamenting. There he is with the people, and he's lamenting and complaining that God's not there. As if God isn't with them, as if God isn't listening to their pleas, their cries for mercy. Because there they are, a people who are cast off because of their sinfulness, so they feel all off as if they're off on their own. As if God isn't listening to them, and there they suffer. Where's God? God's not listening to us. We suffer all the day long, and God's not here. And if you have a, a Bible in front of you other than the handout, because you can turn back a little bit, Isaiah 64 gets at it so strongly. This whole lament gets to this point. But Isaiah 64, verse 7. Isaiah writes, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. This is the, a key verse of this section that says of the context, the fact that Isaiah and the people feel as if God's not there. As if he's hidden his face, which is a Hebrew Old Testament way of saying that he's turned away from them. Right? I mean, think about it. When you're talking with someone, let's just go on a simple level. If you're talking with someone, you want them to look at you, right? It's really rude, let alone you can't tell if they're listening to you. If they're looking over here and right now I'm talking to you, you're like, hey, turn around, right? No one on the radio can understand these things. Challenge of being in person. But the point is, is when we look at someone, we can tell that they're listening. So this is a simple idiom of saying that God has turned his face. He's not listening to them. There they sit, there they cry, calling on his name. And it feels as if to them, as if he's hidden his face from them. As if he's made them melt in the hand of their iniquities. Now we'll get at it in a little bit. Is, I mean, there is judgment for the iniquity. Oh, I don't want to skip too far ahead and then I get all off track. So here's the context. There's this lament. Isaiah saying this. In Isaiah 65, we have God's response. Okay, so God, he, he responds that. And what's interesting is right off in the first few view, verses, he doesn't necessarily um, get at all the little things that were brought up in the lament, but he gets right to the heart of the matter. Especially as we see in verse 1 of 65, God says, I said, here am I, here am I. Okay, so he doesn't get at all the little things that they bring up, but he gets right to the core of the matter that he was and is with them. Here am I. I'm with you. Always have been. So, let's dig into this a little bit more. Look at kind of verse by verse as we go. Okay, verse 1, he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Look at that. Those verses sound a little bit strong to you. I think they sound pretty strong, pretty blunt, honestly. Because think about the context. Here he's saying, look, I was ready to be sought, and you didn't ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. He's calling them out. He's calling them front and center right there, calling them say, hey, you didn't ask for me. You weren't looking for me. Here I was. Here I was the whole time. Which, how many of us like to be called out when we're completely in the wrong, right? For those on the radio, no one's raising their hands, okay? Nobody likes it, all right? Of course not. But this is the reality because God is issuing in this section of Scripture some pretty serious judgment. Uh, it's actually said in some commentaries that this is some of the strongest, these are some of the strongest metaphors that are used in all of the Old Testament to describe who God is and what He is doing in relation to and with his people. But, so we have these strong words right here in the beginning. And God says, I am here. It's kind of, or it goes back to that um, promise we see in other parts of scripture. How God is a very present 
um, help in the time of trouble. Which is also really cool as we study this today. I can't help but think that this year for the National Youth Gathering, the LCMS is putting on for all high school uh, teenagers, the theme is Real Present God. So just kind of a side note, it's really cool because I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with our high school youlers focusing on the fact that God is real and He is present. He's right here with us in our lives every day. Even when we don't think He is. Or even when we think we're talking to Him, or, or when we're talking to Him and we don't think He's listening. But keywords there are on my tone because He absolutely is there and He is always listening. There's one more a strong word at the last part of that first verse. God says, here am I, here am I. To a nation that was not called by my name. Ultimately, these are God's people. But they are God's people who have turned so far away from Him and what He desires of them, they are not acting as if they are called by His name. The name they are representing is a very different name. A rebellious, idolatrous people. So that's, it sounds a little bit odd at first. You're like, wait, this is God's people. He put his, his name on them. He's absolutely still with them, but they are not acting as if, they're not living as if they have his name upon them. Hence the strong words. So let's go to, on to verse 2. Here so God continues and he goes on. He says, I spread out my hands all the day long, all the day, to a rebellious people. Now that kind of, that metaphor is a pretty simple thing, right? Someone stretches out their hands, it means they're, they're there to help. I mean, it's a universal sign. We know it, right? You have a little kid. They start to fall down. Whoop, reach out my hands. I got him. Here God is. says, I stretch out my hands. And, but who does he stretch out his hands to? A rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And if you think about that, that also says a lot about God. God's people are rebellious, who are walking in ways that are not good, following their own devices. And yet there he stretches out his arms, saying, I am here to help you. I am here. Come to me. Be with me. That sounds like a lot of grace to me. There he is stretching out his arms. That's an amazing thing to be able to know and say about our God. That even there, to a rebellious people, there he's standing out and saying, I'm stretching out my arms. But don't get ahead of ourselves. He does have judgment to pronounce, okay? He's not saying, hey, I stretch out my arms, do whatever you want. But he's saying, I'm here. Come to me, be with me. I stretch out my arms all day. Verse 3, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Now, if you've ever had a child or worked with children, it's maybe irritating when they do something that's not right or appropriate, right? It's not good when they do something you tell them not to do, but it's incredibly frustrating when they do it right in front of you, right? I have little children, I'm not going to that extent, and I'm trying not to talk about my children, especially when I'm talking about the fact that this is not a great thing. But even from the littlest ages, you're like, okay, you know the, the kid knows they're not supposed to climb on the table. And yet you're standing right there, and there she goes, climbing way up the table to the highest place, right? Okay? So it's really frustrating that she does it. If I come in the room, okay, it's kind of funny. She climbed on the table. But if I'm standing there, like, come on, right in front of my face, you're going to do what I've told you not to do? But as much as they use this little humor with these little children, because it's cute and funny when kids do it, right? When they're three or younger. We're not talking about anything cute here. This is about God talking about a rebellious people. And we're not talking about climbing up on tables. People, literally, as we're going to get in these coming verses, who are sacrificing to false idols, doing pagan rituals, completely disobeying God to his face. This is serious. It's not just irritating, it's angering. And it's, it's completely in the face of what God says to do. So in verse 3, a people who provoke me to my face, and not just to my face once, not twice, continually. Sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Now what's the deal with that garden word? Anyone here have a garden at home? It's okay to have a garden, okay? We're not talking about this bad to have a garden. What's going on here is this is a reference to the fact that the Canaanites would often conduct their immoral rites, their pagan rituals in gardens. So this reference here to sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks is, the, is a reference to that they're doing pagan, idolatrous, cultic rituals. Different than what God is saying and God had instructed them 
So they are completely going against what he says. And it's actually interesting, as I was reading about this, there's all these, uh, most of the commentaries suggest that it's not even clear that all that's listed here in verse 3 and following were specifically being done by these people. But the point is, is that it's not like God's lying and saying, well, you did this, but they didn't. It's just that God is bringing up the fact that the breadth of, what, of their idolatry is so great. That they're doing all these things, and it's just the same. If they do one idolatrous thing, it's the same as the other. So even if we don't have specific records of them sitting in gardens and sitting in tombs, which comes in verse 4, and these secret places, and the pig's flesh, and the tainted meat, the point is, is this is the severity of the issue. Again, I just bring that up because a lot of commentaries don't agree that necessarily we have specific records of all of these things that are listed here. But this is what God's getting at the point. This is a serious issue. Bill, this is a huge help. Thank you so much for that water. Okay, so verse 4, we go on, as I mentioned, sit in tombs, spend the night in secret places, and eat pig's flesh. Okay, sounds a little bit odd. But again, I've already kind of mentioned to it, but these are these occultic things, things that are against what God had instructed. Especially if you go back into Leviticus. This goes against the Levitical laws of clean and unclean foods. And sitting in tombs and spending the night in secret places could even be so far as, as trying to consult the dead and those type of occult practices. We're not talking about, again, we're not talking about climbing up on a table when God says not to. This is serious stuff. And then look at verse 5. Look at the irony. See if, can anyone see if they can find, I'm just going to start that way. Can anyone see in verse 5 what is the irony that's there? Go ahead, Jan. I'm going to repeat, but go ahead. Okay. Okay. You mean God by he? Okay. So Jan's suggesting it's God saying, well, he's challenging them. But actually what we have here, this is kind of switches persons, okay? So he's talking about in verse 5, who? Referring to the people, the rebellious people. So these rebellious people are saying, keep to yourself... Do not come near me, for I'm too holy for you. So this is God saying, you rebellious people, you're telling other people to stay away from you because you're too holy for them. See the irony now? The incredibly unholy, unrighteous, rebellious people are saying that they're too holy for other people to be with them. And I don't really think this is the whole focus of why this is in our lectionary um, this time of year. But I think there is a good thing for us to see in here is that don't we too see in our lives that even when we're stuck in sin, it's pretty easy to look at and say, well, I'm holier, I'm better than that. Or not even acknowledging that I have sinned because it's just easier to look at others rather than to look at myself. Again, I don't think that this, is, this reading is, is in the lectionary next week for that purpose. But as always, God's Word is always teaching us things that we can always hear at different times. So it's some profound irony there. And there it is. It says in the verse 5, these, so this comes back to God now. God's saying, these, all these things that are listed before, these are smoke in my nostrils of fire that burns all day. And that, that is related to the Hebrew um, language that used um, when God is expressing, or in Hebrew, when you say that someone's angry, the Hebrew words that are using is that their nose burns. If you translate literally in Hebrew, when it's talking about someone being angry, it's that their nose is burning. And so that's like the idiom, that's the Hebrew way of saying that they're angry. And so here, look at this. It's like smoke in my nostrils, a fire burns all day. You think God's angry about this stuff? Absolutely. And not just that he's angry about it, but look at the key. What are the last three words there? All the day. This stuff is going on, it's continuous, and God's not just like a little bit angry, or I was angry, I got over it, I moved past it. It's a continual burning smoke in his nostrils. His anger burns all the day. Okay? So then we go on, and then we have, um, here comes the serious part, which God pronounces his judgment. Okay? Verse 6, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. So God says, all this stuff happened. He's been there the whole time. Always been listening, always been watching, always been present with them. He's saying there will be judgment. Likely they're already experiencing things in their life that are a result of their sin, but also he's talking about a coming judgment even more when they will see and really truly be repaid for their sins. 
Okay? Now, let's not get sidetracked and start thinking that we can take this verse out and say, okay, I did something wrong, now God's going to repay me. That's not where this is going. This is more just a part of where God's word was talking about. That God is saying judgment will come. You can't just live like this and nothing happens. Which gets us to also sidetrack thinking of our lives today. Doesn't it always seem frustrating when you look around in this world and you think, well, they're doing whatever they want, and yet it feels like no judgment. But who are we to say when and how they're being judged? That's God's job. And I know sometimes it just seems like another word for us to say, okay, yeah, that's good. Christians can say that, but it's true to say that judgment will come someday. For the person who chooses to live their life completely rebellious of God and no care, no whatsoever, rejecting his word, there will be judgment one day. That is certain. And for us, it gives us comfort to know that with repentance and going to him every day, that we don't have to fear the day when he comes back because we know our judgment will be the fact that we have faith and by faith we are saved alone. Alright, let's get back to this last couple of verses and we'll uh, see if there's any other questions. Uh, but look at this, then we have verse 8. Skip down to verse 8. God, God, in verse 7, he repeats himself, not because he's being redundant, but um, just emphasizing. Verse 8, God says, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it. So stop there for a second. So anyone here a vine dresser that I'm not aware of? Anyone here have a vineyard? Okay. Good, so I can prove that I really don't know a whole lot. But, let's talk about it anyway. We can all understand, you go to a store, you buy a bag of grapes, right? Let's get pulled in your parking. I don't know anything about growing vines, or grapes. You go to the store, you buy a bunch of grapes, and you buy that bag, there's always a few bad in there, right? One got all smashed up, the one that's a little bit moldy, the one that's, you know, there's some bad grapes. You throw out that entire bag of grapes? I don't. I sure hope you don't, right? I mean, you paid for it. There's all these other grapes, okay? But the reality is, this is what he's saying. He's like, he's saying that this is this whole cluster of grapes. And just because there are a few bad, few rebellious idolaters only after their own, he's not going to throw them all out. The reality is that there are those who are good. And this isn't getting at their good because of their own works. This is the reality that there are those who are turning towards God. So in this bunch of grapes, these people, there are those who aren't turning towards God and those who are. And he's not going to throw them all out to judgment, casting them all off forever and ever. Because there are those who are turning towards him. That's what this is getting at. Because then he makes a transition. He says in verse 8, So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I just mentioned. And then verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob. This last part here, and even talking about those in verse 7 and 8, is that God will preserve a remnant. A remnant is a huge part of theology that, honestly, I could say to do more research in, but we could spend hours and hours and books and books written on, but the fact is, is there there's, there is this remnant. That God has a remnant, a small group, a part of his people that he will preserve. And we see this especially throughout the Old Testament. That even as there's all this idolatry and people around them falling away, he's always preserving because God has a plan. And he will preserve his remnant so that through his remnant he can provide his son, which provides life for all. Which then makes me think of another thing we've, I've been doing a lot recently. VBS. I don't know if anyone... How many VBS volunteers just... I can't count. How many, raise your hand if you were at VBS this last week. Hey, good. I'm going to make you sing. Are you ready? No, I'm just kidding. No singing, okay? But at VBS this last week, uh, we used the materials produced by CPH, and the whole theme this year was miraculous mission. That God's on a miraculous mission to save you, each and every one of you. That God created this world, and then uh, he made a promise because the world fell into sin. He made a promise, and then, then he sent his son, and his son died and rose, and his son ascended to heaven, promised to coming back again. Look, I gave you all five days in like 15 seconds. But the point is, is God has this miraculous mission. Nothing's going to stand in the way of it. And I share that, and I talk about that, not just because that's all I can think about this week, but because here in this, with this remnant discussion, this thought of a remnant, is that God will preserve. That even all this idolatry, all this stuff that's going on, this turning away, as horrible as it is, as we talked about in these first like five verses, that's not going to stand in the way of God and His plan. That He will be there, and He will establish His plan for His people. Are there any questions, thoughts about this reading you all would like to share? Oh, yeah, Jan, sorry. Go ahead.
Yes, and especially for others. So Jan's talking about there, there is a significant contrast in this passage of judgment and salvation. And you're absolutely right uh, that this, this is a section in which there's a lot of that contrast. And unfortunately, our lectionary reading kind of stops right before we get to a ton of that salvation talk. Uh, but so thank you for bringing that up. Right. And it's interesting, as we'll go into our, our next lesson, too, in Galatians, we have this um, a significant discussion in Galatians about the law. And so to what you bring up, that without the laws, we'll get into Galatians, without the talk of judgment and the law, salvation loses its, uh, its, its need as well. We need that judgment, that law, to drive us, to, that tells us of our need for that Savior, our need for that salvation. Paul? Yeah. You know, okay, so, sorry, repeat the question. Paul asked if uh, in verse 1, the here am I, here am I by God is a playoff of God's name um, in Exodus. I didn't look it up. Does anyone have their Hebrew? No, I mean, I, seriously, I didn't bring it. I, I would like to check, uh, but I can't say for certain. I didn't see anything in commentaries mentioning that, but that's not without looking at their, all their Hebrew notes on that. Right. Yeah, and again, I don't know of their connection, but I think if nothing else, we're going to hear those, right? We're going to hear those connections. What? Okay. Not the I am. Because Hineni is more of behold here, or behold I, right? Behold me. So, thank you. So, not directly to um, in Exodus, but probably likely, as you said, to more Isaiah 6. Great. I knew someone would have it in here. Okay? It's a blessing being here at St. Paul. Y'all have the languages. This is good. Any other questions or thoughts on this part, this scripture reading? All right, let's go on to Galatians, because I don't want to neglect the other readings. Um, good discussion. Well, okay. hopefully it's been beneficial to me talking, not so much discussion as time, but... Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 23, through chapter 4, verse 7. I'll read those. Galatians 3, verse 23, through 4, verse 7. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is, either new, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or, and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So here ends our epistle reading that comes up in the lectionary next week. Um, looking at this, my guess is, show of hands, how many of you have heard this part? A couple times maybe before? Okay. It's, at least to me, it's quite, quite familiar um, because... Well, all the way back to seminary, the very first time I did an exegetical study was on this. So that was kind of neat. Unfortunately, I couldn't find my notes. So I had to rework at it and relook at it. But anyways, it's a common portion of scripture. Uh, I think that many of us study. And this last year, we studied Galatians um, in our Living Way Bible study. So that was, that was a joy to do as well. 
But let's look at these verses. In verse, as I mentioned, in these verses we get especially a discussion of the law and the importance of the law. Well, as always, we need to start with context because the context is important. Because he talks about the law and imprisoning and alike, but then talks about that we're free and in Christ. The reality, or the context here, is that this letter is written to these Gentiles, and these people that in, the, in this time, or written to the people that in this time, the Jews and the Gentiles, there's a significant debate. Were the Gentiles to submit themselves entirely to all the laws that the Jews followed, or were they free from those laws such as you know, the Levitical laws and the like. So there's this whole debate of, do we adhere to the law or not, and, and whatnot. So here we have this context that Paul is writing, talking about that the law has a purpose. It is, has a purpose for everyone. But that in Christ, we are set free. Not just abolishing and saying, hey, to, you know, forget about it. But also not to constrain us and to bind us to these laws that, thinking that those laws are what will gain us or earn us salvation. So, we have this metaphor that is used to describe the law and its purpose. In verse, um, sorry, lost my place. Verse 25 starts bringing up this word of guardian, and then it's mentioned again in chapter 4, verse 2, guardians and managers. What we have is that it's talking about this law in reference, in a metaphor to a guardian or manager that was used at that time. Culturally, at that time, children were often under a guardianship or manager of a slave. A slave whose role was the um, carer of that child. They would take care of that child. They would... Um, I wrote down their specific rules here. Or, yep. Okay, lost it. Found it. There we go, sorry. Okay, specifically, what they did is they exercised general supervision over the, the child, and it was their responsibility to bring the child to the teacher who would give the child the beneficial instruction. And so this slave who was over their child, it, it, was, it was a huge role, very significant. Okay? And it's not like the parent's role was completely gone, but this, this guardian, this manager, was the one who was caring for this, this child, taking them to their teacher who would then teach them what they needed to learn. So the teacher is the one who is giving them the significant instruction that's really benefiting them, helping that child to grow, giving them the very things that they need. But then this guardian was taking them to that teacher. And so we think about this metaphor that you have this guardian, which is compared to the law, which leads the child to the beneficial instruction. The law leads, the child leads us to the gospel. It's kind of like taking all of it and all the books and like saying it in like two minutes. Okay. But this is the metaphor we have, this guardian, this, this manager who was over a child. Now let's look at this for a second too. Verse 23, there's some very strong words about the law. In verse 23 it says, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Okay, so you're held, held captive in prison. Those are some strong words. Because when talking about the law, the reality is, is we can't escape it. When we're confronted with the law, there's no escaping or avoiding its condemnation. We can't just get around it. We can't establish ourselves as righteous. When we're confronted with it, we are under it, we are held captive by it, we are imprisoned by it. it confronts us of our sin. But then, you see that it says in verse 23, we're imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, faith in this portion of Scripture is not referring to, as some commentaries call it, a beliefism. It's not referring to just believing in God. But rather, here, faith is actually referring to that which will be revealed to Jesus. So faith here in this section is used not to talk about our faith and what we believe, how we trust in Him, how we believe in Him. But rather, here, faith is more referring to Jesus Himself. And so now think about this verse again, considering that. We were held before faith came. Before Jesus came, we're held captive by the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So until Jesus Christ comes and shows that he has fulfilled the law, that he has set us free, we're only held captive, imprisoned by that law. And so now these harsh terms that sound terrible, imprisoned and held captive, they're contrasted, back to Jan's point with the last reading, they're contrasted by the sweetness of this gospel. 
when Jesus Christ comes, he sets us free, releases us. Again, not in the sense that we can do whatever we want, however we wish. But that we are set free, we are no longer weighted down by the burdens of our sin. So we go on in verse 24, now we get into that metaphor of the guardian. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. Now that, Christ, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So there we put it all together, that under that law you are led to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like the child who's under the guardian led to his instructor, led until the age also then, when that child is then free from their guardian. So they've reached the age in which they're not under that guardian anymore. So, look in at verse 26. Look at the word it used. Until now you're set free in Christ. In verse 26, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And that's an important word, sons of God. Yes, women, that includes you, okay? This is not gender exclusive, okay? This is to mean and to say that you are part of the family. You're members of the household, the heavenly family, okay? Now, we talk about this often. I think I've said this like four times in Bible class here, this specific setting, but I want to remind ourselves. I know that in our world today, many families are broken. Many families have plenty of sin running through them that have caused pain and hurt and suffering. When we talk about our heavenly family, we have a perfect family. A family that in Jesus Christ is made clean, is made perfect, has none of those blemishes, none of those division, none of that pain, none of that suffering. So here, for some people as they read this to talk about being part of the family, maybe family brings up a whole lot of terrible feelings and emotions. But what God is trying to show us here is that we get to be, because of Christ, part of His family. And that's not just a someday too, that's a right now. Right now, you're part of his family. And yes, we're still living on this earth, so we too are sinners. We are part of this family of faith who still have sin. That's why, especially if we come back here to worship every single week, to confess our sins, receive forgiveness, right? But also look at the one day when we get to be part of that family that no more has that sin. That's an amazing thing to look forward to. Um, and then in the last few verses... I would suggest these, if nothing else, are verses you've definitely heard before in study of word. It talks about that we are baptized into Christ. There's no, no more Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. In baptism, all are united. We have this perfect unity. No more are there, are there those distinctions. Because again, let's get, cult, let's get contextual and look at culturally. Culturally at that time, Jew and Greek was one of the largest distinctions that was made. The whole society was divided based on it. Then you get into slaves. Again, a significant division, especially in the Roman world. That there were those who had slaves, and, or those who were slaves, and those who were free. Those who had rights and those who didn't. Those who were the lowest of society and those who were higher than them. Significant division. And then you get to the male and female. Again, culturally at that time, culturally... Women were not valued nearly as they are today. Okay? Women were considered far lower, far less significant. And now here in this passage, it's talking about that all of those divisions are gone. That in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or, fr or female. End of verse 28, you're all one in Jesus Christ. The one in Jesus Christ goes on to then tell us what does that mean again in verse four or chapter four, verse one, that we are an heir, no longer a child, uh, no longer, uh, sorry, no longer as he's called a child, is he's no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Okay, so those in Christ are an heir. It's an heir, those who inherit things, right? I think I've used this in a sermon one time, but my mother always tells me that my inheritance one day is all the junk she has in her basement, all the papers, all my school papers that she saved for years and years. So that's my inheritance. She tells me all the junk that's stored up in her basement. I said, great, thanks, Mom. Which, by the way, I'm trying to sort. I told her, Mom, every time I come see you, I'm taking one bucket out from there, just slowly, just so I don't have to do it all at once. But anyways, an inheritance, what we receive, and here we have that in Christ, they're an heir. Those who receive all that the Heavenly Father has to give. 
And I could go on and on for so long, but I pray, I pray that you already know that it's eternal life and forgiveness and all of the promises of God. That as his heir, that's what you have. Not the junk that's in our, my mother's basement, okay? You have an amazing inheritance, okay? And then here, we're running short on time, so I want to get to one last thing here. In verse 6, it says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay? Especially on Pentecost Day to talk about the spirit. That because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That Abba being the Aramaic word for father. Okay? And there's, I don't know what you've heard before. I'm going to stand strong on one thing. And if I'd be wrong, someone call me out. I'll repent if I am. Abba does not mean daddy. Okay? There's some translations. Some people will suggest that the Abba means like a daddy. Like I call my dad my daddy. Right? I don't think that's accurate. But the point here is that Abba is the Aramaic of father. That both of those words get at the point that we get to call him father. That we get to call him by his personal name. That as a part of a family, you get to call your father, father. You get to call him dad. You get to call him father. That's that personal connection. No one else gets to call him their father. He's yours. Right? It's kind of weird sometimes if someone else calls your dad, dad, right? Because that's your personal name for him. And here, we're all sons. We're all part of that heavenly family. We get to call him, our heavenly father, father. The point is that it's his personal name. We get to call him our father. Again, broken families in this world, but this is a beautiful statement to know that we have a Heavenly Father who's perfect and loving and always the same. So the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, and because of the Spirit's work, good thing for Pentecost today, only by the Spirit can we call, cry out to Him. The Spirit moves in our hearts, creating our faith and allowing us to call Him Father. That's a pretty amazing thing. Any questions or thoughts? I realized I was running a little short on time when we get to the gospel lesson. All right, let's go to Luke then. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Here ends our gospel reading for next week. Okay, so Luke chapter 8, we have um, accounts of the demons. Jesus heals a man with a demon. When looking at this, one of the commentaries directed me at first, and I think a good reason for us is that we see previously in the book of Luke, 
another account of Jesus healing a man with a demon. Okay, and so in Luke chapter 4, verse 33 through 37, Jesus heals another man who is possessed by a demon. But when we do that, we can compare the two and see that there's a lot of similarities. As we'll get to, there's one thing that stands out, which will help us focus on this passage. But when you look at the both of these, you see that both of them began with the demon addressing Jesus, saying, what is there to us, to me, and to you? So in both accounts, the demon addresses Jesus. And in both accounts, both of them include a remarkable confession of who Jesus is. In Luke 4, Jesus is called the Holy One of God. And in here, Jesus is called the Son of God, the Most High. Then, both of them also show that Jesus releases those who are in bondage to these demons. So Jesus heals them both, releases both of these men from their demons. And in both, the crowds respond in amazement over Jesus' power over these demons. But here's the thing that's different. In this account, Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8 includes the response of the person who is freed from the demons. In Luke 4, we don't hear the response of the, the man who's cleaned, uh, cleansed and healed from his demon, but here we do. And so as the commentator suggested that I was reading, I think it's good form for us too, that can help us focus on this account of Scripture. How this account may even be directed even more for us to see this response of this man. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Let's look at what the setting here. We have this man who's possessed by a demon. He's naked, he's in chains, he's mad. And then we have this discussion about the abyss and the destruction of pigs. Okay? All of this seems a little bit strange. I've never even heard of such a thing going on today. Talking about a man in chains and being naked and, and going mad. And then we talk about casting out of a demon, going to the abyss and destruction of pigs. Doesn't sound like anything we hear today. Doesn't mean it's not true. Okay? But also, I would say that likely many of us have never encountered someone who's possessed by a demon. I would pray that none of us have. Okay? I forgot to make one side note here. This is true. All of God's word is true. I think that's part of why you're here. But we're talking about a real thing when we say that someone was possessed by a demon. And oftentimes I talk, when I talk about uh, when we're in confirmation with our youth, they'll at some point, it's always random, it's never when we're on that subject matter, at some point youth will bring up, are demons real? It's never on the lesson we're supposed to be talking about, but that's okay. So we address it anyways because we need to talk about this stuff. The reality is that demons are real. And they do exist today. Definitely existed in this time. We have record of them, and they do exist today. And I say that in no way to glorify demons at all. That would be horrible. That would be glorifying completely the opposite of God. But sometimes we do need to talk about the reality of what exists. Because one, God's Word talks about it. And two, to re recognize what is around us. And that when we're in, if, we were, if we were to engage in only talking about demons and fascinating about them and engaging in demonic practices, we're putting ourselves and anyone else who's connected to us in serious risk. Okay? Which always then when the kids bring up demon possession, I start to then talk to them about things like Ouija boards and those movies. Okay? Paranormal Activity. It's a movie that came out like five, eight years ago or so by now. It's very real life the way it's done. And I always admit to the kids, I'll admit this on the radio, okay? This is a confession. I watched it. I should have never watched it, okay? It scared me to my wits. Because this stuff's real. And I confess to kids, I say, don't go do it and then have a confession. But the reality is, is I need to confess I did that because I shouldn't have. Because when we watch movies that are glorifying these demons, when we do Ouija boards or things like that, that's engaging in those practices. And when we engage in demonic practices, we put ourselves more at risk for being pulled into those ways than trusting in God and His ways. And we as Christians, and this is the last part I always tell them, so I'll wrap it up here too with that before we get to our text. We don't have to be afraid of demons. We're in Christ. Just got through Galatians 3 and 4. We're in Him. We're His heirs. We're His. We're safe. Doesn't mean we start wandering off looking at Him and thinking about Him. But in, in Him, we are safe. Okay? It's my little uh, lecture on demons. Okay? But so let's go back to this. So we have this, 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 this discussion here that seems odd and seems strange to us. Okay? 
But consider this man, let's, we have a couple minutes left, consider how serious this possession is and how serious the matter is. You have this man who's uh, he's, has, he's naked, he's uh, chained up, and where is he? He's among the tombs, okay? So he's the possessed man, he's unclean, then he's taken and he's going to one of the most unclean places there are, one of the most deserted, to the tombs. He's also a Gentile, so he's outside of the Israelite people. So putting all of those factors together, sounds like he's doomed. I mean, he's got almost everything striking against him. He's a Gentile, he's an outsider, he's possessed, he's in, a, he's in amongst the tombs. Seems pretty much like a no way, nothing can save him situation. But then Jesus comes in. And I share that to, again, contrast the severity of the situation. Because then Jesus comes, and Jesus comes to him. And Jesus cleanses him. He heals him. How? Look in the scripture. How does Jesus heal this man? He commands him. He speaks. Again, I may sound redundant because I say this every time we look at miracles. But look at the way Jesus does it. It shows where his power is. He speaks. It's his word. His word is so powerful, it can clean a man from a demon. Take a man who's in the tombs, possessed by a demon, an outsider, a Gentile, and there it cleanses him and takes him. And now where's that man? Look in the latter part of these verses. Where, which verse is it in? Um, verse 35. Look at where this man is now. The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, found the man from the de where, whom the demons had gone, and where is he next? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now that's a transformation. Took him from the tombs, possessed by a demon, and there he is sitting at the feet of Jesus to follow him. That's an amazing transformation. That's the power of what Jesus' word can and does do. So... The last part I want to get at um, here is that, or two, two more things. These pigs, why the demons go to pigs? I don't know. Okay? I don't know. Even reading the commentaries, I was like, all right, someone's going to ask, why did the demons go into pigs and go off the cliff? I don't know. Commentaries also agreed, we don't know. But what could we, could we suggest, reasonable, reasonable guess looking at this, that in verse 33, they came out of the man, entered the pigs... Again, we could look at the unclean animal. And the, but more importantly, the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So more importantly, let's look at what is the fate of those demons? What happens to them? They go down to the deep and are drowned. And so not to get too heavy into this, but likely, I don't know what's going on with the pigs and all that, but we know that demons are cast out of the man he's made clean, and the demons are cast off into, into the deep. They're no, no more a problem. The last thing I want to touch base on before we wrap up with any other questions or thoughts is um, what's said about Jesus. Okay, Go to verse 39. Jesus says to, to this man who is healed, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Again, we have a significant testament to who Jesus is. Because, remember, I know we just finished Easter and we're in Ascension, right? And Pentecost. But we've went, we went back here in our scripture readings in Luke chapter 8. People haven't been fully revealed to who Je this Jesus is. But here's another point where he's starting to tell them and show them who he is. And this is pretty blatant. He's telling them, go say how much God has done for you. Because who cast out the demon? God. But also, who could we say? Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the one standing right there who says the word, because Jesus is God, but Jesus casts him out, because then it says, and he, this man who was healed, went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is no slip of the word. God's word isn't just, oh, we're going to just throw different words in here. This is intentional. Jesus is showing who he is. I mean, he showed who he is by doing a miracle, by healing a man, taking a demon out of him. But then he goes on to say, tell him what God has done, what I've done, because I am God. And likely, as we know through the Gospels, people don't always catch on to all those things, because Jesus is waiting to lead them to the point when he dies and rises to show them who he truly is. But here we have another testament. 
And so that shows us who this Jesus is uh, for his people. Are there any questions or thoughts? Luke 8. Paul. Interesting point. Thank you. I'm going to read peace so everyone can hear that. It shows the significance of one soul that Jesus would save him, and yet an entire herd would go off the cliff and be lost. And as he pointed out for our own, for Matt, um, our, our, one of our organists, our assistant music director, who is, has farming background, how significant that would be to lose an entire herd. And yet that's how significant that one man is, that one person. Thank you, Paul. That's, that's good. Jan. Right. Absolutely. And so a look, to repeat, a little, sum up a little bit, I can't get all that word for word. Um, but that fact that the people in this area were afraid of what they had just seen, because they're likely, as you said, afraid of this demon possession. Don't, that's scary enough. But then someone who has power over that, and especially in an area who doesn't yet know who this Jesus is, that is, that, or that does instill some fear. And then, Jen, the last part that you, wanna, that you brought up, I do want to mention, is that, that this shows us then, especially what we get to go do, that we get to go proclaim who Jesus is, which is fitting why we get this in this part of the church here, again, why people work together to put these readings together, but that we, knowing who he is and his power, to go out and share that with all people, because how important is that one person, as Paul brought up? So important. So important that we should go out so that all the people could know of this Jesus. Our Jesus. Thank you, Jan. All right. We're about out of time, so let's close with a word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the amazing gift that we get to call you Father. That you are our Heavenly Father, our perfect, loving, grace-filled Father. That you sent your, sent your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, for us. So we get to inherit all the wonderful gifts you have for us. Please continue to move your spirit in our hearts so that we cry out to you in prayer and for anything and everything that we do. But also, Lord, move your spirit in us so that we would proclaim your word, proclaim your son to all people. And so, Lord, we lift up to you these things and all things that are on our hearts and minds in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.